Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another Behind the Knife, uh, and we're lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Christian Jones, an acute care surgeon at Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Medical Center, and Dr. Jones has given us some scenarios before in both trauma and acute care surgery, and we had lots of great feedback, and so we really uh, asked him and begged him to come back on again, and he, once again, is sacrificing his Sunday night to join us. So, Dr. Jones, we really appreciate it, and uh, we're looking forward to, to learning from you. Kevin, it's a pleasure, as always. I am really looking forward to absolutely torturing you and Wu. <laughs> Sounds good, sir. We're ready. We've been getting beat down uh, for a couple hours now, so we're we're just you know open uh, souls here. So absolutely. Well, let's dive right in then. Uh, who's going to go first? I, I will, Kevin. All right, Dr. Neary. Um, this is Christian Jones. Very nice to meet you. I'm sure you'll do well today. I've got just a couple of scenarios for you, and I want you to treat these just as you would treat any patient that you're treating in the hospital. Uh, there's no tricks here. I'll tell you the information that you need to know. And of course, if you have any questions, ask anytime, okay? Great, thank you. So we're gonna start with a patient that you're evaluating in the emergency department. Uh, she's a 70-year-old woman who comes from her nursing home with uh, obstipation, according to the nursing home staff. She's unfortunately demented and unable to provide you with much history. According to her caregivers, she has a history of, quote, some abdominal surgery uh, and currently hasn't had a bowel movement in four days. They said she's becoming worse in terms of her dementia and they think that she's having abdominal pain. She has a distended abdomen and on arrival in the emergency department, as I said, is demented, but appears to be stable hemodynamically, being able to protect her airway, and is pleasantly having a conversation with you. Great. Um, so I, you know, immediately uh, go evaluate her down in the emergency room. I would uh, look at her vital signs and make sure she has IV access. And then I perform a, a physical exam focusing on her chest and abdomen. Okay, you do a good physical exam. Uh, there's no abnormalities in her chest. Uh, her breath sounds are good. There's no sign of pneumonia. There's no heart murmurs, uh, and she's got no scars there. She does have a midline scar consistent with a wide laparotomy, but no other obvious scars on her abdomen to give a hint as to what her prior surgery may have been. She has a massively distended abdomen, the nursing home staff says she is not obese at baseline, and this is far out of normal for her. It's tympanitic, and she does have uh, some grimace when you push on it, though no clear peritoneal signs or uh, obvious, easily localization of her pain. Okay. Uh, at this time, I would do a rectal exam also. So you do a rectal exam. Uh, there's really no stool in the rectal vault. Uh, but she doesn't have any significant pain and doesn't have any masses or bleeding either. Okay. I would send off a CBC, a BNP, and coag, and I would perform a uh, 
upright KUB. All right. On uh, uh, on your KUB, you've sent off your labs, and on your KUB, uh, you see distended loops of small bowel with gas throughout them. Uh, some air fluid levels, though you're not uh, clear on exactly what uh, uh, on exactly where those are in the small bowel, um, and no significant uh, stool burden or gas throughout the colon. No distended uh, colon that you know. That's correct. Okay. Um, and at this point, um, I, I would place an NG tube in um, as she has a bowel obstruction of, of, of some nature that I'm not clear on yet. Um, and do I, do I get bilious contents back? Uh, you do not a whole lot, uh, but it's kind of thin bilious, more like gastric with a little bit of bile in it. Okay. And given that I didn't see any free air on that, um, is her creatinine okay to undergo an IV contrast at CT? It is. And you go ahead and uh, uh, look over the rest of her labs. You find that she has a white count of 10,000, uh, a slight anemia of uh, with hemoglobin of 11, uh, and no other lab abnormalities whatsoever. So you go ahead and get your CT uh, with contrast. Do you want PO contrast as well? Um, I forget. Was she vomiting at all? Or she was. Uh, I'm sorry. She was not vomiting. No. Okay, I, I'll do uh, oral contrast. Yes. Okay, so with IV and PO contrast, you uh, get a scan of her abdomen and pelvis. Uh, it again shows significantly dilated loops of small bowel, really from the stomach all the way down, almost to the ileocecal valve. There appears to be a calcified mass uh, just before the ileocecal valve and that's consistent with a point of obstruction. There's no free okay. air, there's no free fluid, there's mild stranding in that terminal ileum. Okay, I would uh, give her IV fluids and uh, keep NG tube in and observe her overnight to see if uh, this distension improves. So her distension does not improve and despite her NG tube overnight, uh, she does become nauseated and vomits uh, twice. Uh, no aspiration, no sequelae of that. Yeah. Okay. I would consider a colonoscopy, but I'm not sure uh, what exactly it would give me um, in this scenario, especially with an unprepped uh, colon. Um, but and given that I have a focal point of obstruction um, that's seen uh, near the ileocecal valve, um, I would um, consent her for an exploratory laparotomy uh, with uh, possible bowel resection. Okay. So you take her to the operating room. Tell me what you're going to do. Um, I, I would perform a, uh, a midline laparotomy um, about five centimeters superior to the umbilicus to five centimeters below the umbilicus, not, um, and uh, enter abdomen, uh, place the book Walter, and try and evaluate that. Uh, I, I would eviscerate all of her bowel and uh, specifically um, start running the bowel from the ileocecal uh, valve to identify where this uh, point of obstruction is identified. Okay, so you take her to the operating room, you do your exploratory laparotomy. Amazingly, she doesn't have terrible adhesions. You're able to find down uh, in her right lower quadrant, right at the ileocecal valve, a firm mass uh, which feels intraluminal. As a matter of fact, you think it might even be mobile. 
Um, it uh, feels round and hard uh, and is very clearly your point of obstruction. Okay, yes. Uh, so at this point, um, I think she may have a gallstone ileus, uh, given that it's mobile. I would um, I would milk the stone back and uh, to a point of, of bowel that's uninflamed, and I would perform an enterotomy and uh, remove this stone um, and then close the enterotomy. And then I would uh, fully search her the rest of her small bowel for any other evidence of stones. Um, and then um, and if I found no further stones, I would not perform a fistula takedown in this patient, and I would close her abdomen. Okay. Let's move on to another case. Uh, when you're in the recovery room with this patient, uh, she is doing reasonably well, but you're asked to see another patient that one of your partners operated on. Um, this gentleman has remained intubated after having a very difficult AAA repair. Uh, he had an open procedure for an inflamed, uh, that is a, a, a mycotic aneurysm, um, and again, it, it was quite difficult. They don't have any ICU beds, which is why he's still in the PACU. Uh, he, like I said, is intubated and sedated, and the anesthesiologist has asked you to take a look at him because it's now been an hour and a half since surgery, and he hasn't made any urine. Okay. Um... What are his vital signs? Uh, his blood pressure is 114. That's 114 uh, over 70. His heart rate is 90. His uh, pulse ox is 100% on 30% uh, by ET tube. He's breathing uh, 18 times a minute, but that's controlled with his ventilator currently. Okay. Um, I would make sure he has IV access. I would attempt a... Uh, a fluid bolus to see if this could improve his uh, perfusion, and then I would uh, send off a CBC, a BMP, coag, and a lactate. Okay, you send your labs off. They're stat. They should be back relatively quickly. Uh, what fluid and how much are you going to give him? I'd, I'd give him a liter of normal saline. Okay. Um, anything else you want to do before administering fluid to him? He's currently not hypotensive. Uh, you That's said, correct. And I, I would flush his fully, fully catheter to ensure um, it's not clogged. Um, and, and obviously the patient isn't aneuric at baseline. I, I'd read over his history to make sure he's you know, not in renal failure at baseline. Um, That's right. Um, apart from his uh, known long-term aneurysm, he had no significant medical problems uh, because of his vascular disease, he is on a beta blocker, but not on any other meds at baseline. Uh, you flush it with 50 cc's of uh, water and 50 cc's comes back. Um, you uh, examine the patient and find that he has a fairly distended abdomen, uh, but is otherwise thin. Uh, it, he's sedated, so he doesn't have any response to your exam. Uh, the wound itself is still dressed, uh, but doesn't appear to have any bleeding through the uh, dressing. Uh, what what are his distal pulses? I'm sorry? What are his distal pulses? He has uh, palpable, strong, distal DP and PT pulses. And does he have any blood on rectal exam? Uh, you do a rectal exam, and uh, he does have stool in the rectal vault. It's 
brown, uh, and there's no blood. No blood. Um, okay, I'm concerned that he could have a bilateral uh, ureter injury. I would perform a, a fast exam to see if there's a fluid in the belly. Uh, yes, there is some fluid in the belly. Uh, you call your partner who operated on this gentleman, and he says, no, we used quite a lot of irrigation because of the mycotic aneurysm, and uh, I fully expect there to be some residual fluid. On your examination by ultrasound, uh, there is fluid in bilateral upper quadrants and in the pelvis, uh, but you're unable to quantify how much. Okay. Um, and the patient remains stable um, and just has a distended abdomen with fluid in it. Okay. Um, uh, he, his, his pressure seems to be getting just a little bit worse. He's down to 100 systolic. 100 systolic. And what did his labs come back? Uh, so he has a CBC uh, of 7.8. That's down from 11 preoperatively, but he didn't have any intraoperative uh, C, uh, hemoglobin. Um, his white count is 11,000. Uh, his other chemistries are significant only for uh, creatinine of 1.8, up from 0 0.8 at baseline, and uh, BUN of 30. I would do a uh, duplex of his aorta to see if the renals were uh, covered in this case, if, if they're able to do that. And if they're not, I would do a CT uh, scan stat to evaluate if the renal arteries were covered with the stent. Okay. So you actually are able to do a uh, an ultrasound showing good flow um, to the renal arteries, but unable to visualize the renal veins bilaterally. Uh, there is fluid overlying just about everywhere in the abdomen that you're able to see. And at this point, he is still not making urine. Uh, his heart rate's still 90, uh, but his blood pressure is now down to 90 systolic as well. Okay. Um, I would I would get a bladder pressure on him to see if he has abdominal compartment syndrome at this point. So his bladder pressure is measured at 22. Okay, and he's hypotensive, and he has fluid in his abdomen, and he's distended on his abdominal exam. Uh, at this point, I'm concerned that either has blood or uh, urine in his abdomen, and he uh, potentially has abdominal compartment syndrome. Uh, so I would uh, take him back to the operating room for to re-explore. So you'll, you call your partner, and your partner says that he's happy to come in and help, uh, but it'll take him a couple hours to get there. Um, are you going to wait for him? I would not. Okay. You take him back to the operating room. You open his wound, and you find uh, a rapid evisceration of bowel consistent with uh, it being under high pressure. You uh, talk to the anesthesiologist who says that his blood pressure has immediately improved and is now 130 systolic. Uh, he's still not making urine, but it's only been a, uh, a moment. Um, you find that he's got a lot of clear fluid throughout the abdomen, but only uh, moderate edema of his uh, uh, of his small bowel throughout. Okay, and, and so it's not blood. He's not uh, exsanguinating. No, anyway. okay. that's correct. He, um, okay. it, it's blood tinged, but uh, but it's not blood. Okay, um, I would send it for a stat creatinine and then uh, attempt to evaluate the ureter um, 
in the retroperitoneum bilaterally. Okay. Uh, the creatinine on the urine, uh, sorry, the creatinine on the fluid is one. Uh, the ureters you are unable to identify in any way bilaterally. Uh, you reflect up the colon on the right uh, in order to try to get a better view of the retroperitoneum, but of course, the retroperitoneum is just entirely socked down. Right. Okay. Um, so at this point, I have less of a concern for ureter injury causing abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, and he's not bleeding. Is he otherwise hemodynamically normal at this point? Uh, heart rate 90, blood pressure 130 over 80. Uh, his peak pressures have come down on his ventilator, and he's uh, uh, otherwise hemodynamically stable. Okay, I would I would place uh, you know I'd, I'd perform it, uh, perform a thorough abdominal exam for a bowel injury for um, any kind of bladder injury, um, and and if I don't identify any other abnormalities associated with the surgery. Um, in running the bowel, I would uh, place an there and resuscitate him in the ICU. Okay. Uh, let's call it good. That's the end of your two cases. Uh, first of all, was it fast? Was it slow? What did you think? I think I was a little slow on the second one. I think the first one we moved, I, when you said old lady demented, I, I was thinking sigmoid volvulus. That's what my brain was thinking the whole time. And that's, so that's even, good. When told, even, even when he told me calcified, uh, you know, thing seen in the ileocecal valve still didn't register with me. Uh, but I think that one moved at, at a good clip. I think I could have gone uh, at a better pace on the second one. So I think he did fine uh, in terms of the pacing. It, these are remarkably fast scenarios. I think one of the things that we miss, whether we're talking mock orals or just preparing in general for the oral exam, is that these are seven to 10 minute cases. And the goal is to get through the important points in those seven to 10 minutes. That doesn't mean you've cured the patient. That doesn't mean you've done absolutely everything you can possibly do. And, and that doesn't mean that you have to go exactly where the examiner wants you to go. But if you do go too slowly, uh, specifically one of the old things that, that some test prep courses recommended was asking uh, for information and waiting for it in a very slow fashion in order to stall so that you don't say anything stupid, and that won't work anymore. Um, instead, the examiners will know that you're stalling and uh, will probably take it out on you a little bit, but we'll certainly take it out on you in your scoring. So the important part is to go through this as you did in a methodical, systematic fashion, but relatively quickly. That timing that we just did on the two cases was really, I think, pretty representative. You'll have patients that you're able to do the initial portion very quickly and end up needing to spend more time in the operating room or on post-op care. So there will be patients who are completely undifferentiated early on, and you'll have to spend a great deal of time. Yet, once you get to the operating room, it's uh, remarkably easy and, and takes very little time. So I, I think as long as you keep that pacing and, most importantly, keep up the methodic, easy, systematic uh, evaluation of your patients, you're going to do great. Um, so let's talk the immediate cases themselves. Uh, yeah, the first one, gallstone ileus, uh, again, a classic case that will come up from time to time on the boards. Uh, it's 
uh, as you noted, associated with a uh, cholecystoenteric fistula. You didn't actually find the fistula in this case, and that's not necessary. Uh, Especially in the patient who's acutely ill, your goal is to get them over the acute problem uh, more than anything else. You searched the small bowel for other stones that may be there, which was perfect. I think the only thing you reasonably could have done differently is taken the patient to the operating room earlier. That is, as soon as you diagnosed it. Um, and, you know, in this particular case, it wouldn't have made a great deal of difference if you had gone uh, immediately or waited a day as long as you didn't continue to try non-operative management. And you, you changed that very quickly. So good job on that one. Uh, questions on the gallstone ileus? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, from, you know, I think the most of the reading is that in the acutely ill patient, it is the correct thing to, to leave the fistula in place. Uh, to fight another day, is that is that what you'd recommend for that scenario? That's exactly what I would recommend for that scenario, especially in the older patient who uh, is almost always the patient that has the gallstone ileus. Uh, remember, they're not going to tolerate uh, massive surgery in the acute setting uh, any better than uh, an elective surgery uh, and probably much worse. So I would not attempt a a fistula takedown in this patient in that acute setting. Uh, Realistically, you, if you had tried to do that, uh, I would have made it too difficult for you to do so uh, in an attempt to uh, keep you from trying to dissect all of that out uh, and causing more damage. Um, It's not unusual for this fistula to be associated with a shrunken, shriveled gallbladder and be entirely unable to be removed without a biliary reconstruction of some kind, whether it's a hepaticojejunostomy or something similar. And uh, again, uh, if you're able to avoid it in uh, this elderly, demented patient, all the better. Great. Okay. So your second case uh, is, again, one of those classic non-differentiated post-op cases. It really doesn't matter whether this is a AAA or some other case. Uh, The seven cases that we have patients who don't pee post-operatively is exactly as you went through uh, abdominal compartment syndrome, hypovolemia, mechanical obstruction, ureter injury. and then the two that we didn't specifically go after, though you could have uh, found them, uh, cardiogenic shock, of course, and renal artery stenosis. Anything else is drug-induced, but again, not typically immediately post-op, um, or uh, simple tubular necrosis from uh, intraoperative blood loss. So again, at, keep those in mind, and those should be able to come in a systematic fashion for you. I guarantee you there will be people who are listening to this who get the question of acute post-op polyuria or anuria. And we think that we're so accustomed to dealing with this on a regular basis that, oh yeah, sure, we check the Foley and we give the patient uh, a bolus of fluid and that's it. But again, certainly on the boards in your critical care questions, you're going to have it be the very last thing you check as uh, what needs to be um, uh, examined uh, or treated. So again, in this particular case, it was an abdominal compartment syndrome, but really that's only because it was the last thing that you got to. If the very last thing you had done after checking everything else uh, was flush the Foley, then that would have been the problem the entire time. (laughs) 
Good. Okay. Uh, All right. Yeah, those, uh, are tough. those are tough scenarios. <laughs> it, it is. And once again, it, it's supposed to be. It's not designed to make you feel stupid. It's not designed to do anything other than to make sure that you're approaching these in a systematic way. You don't have to think of absolutely everything. It's okay to ask questions and even to ask for help, for instance, by calling your uh, partner who operated on the patient and finding out if he had any difficulties. Um, but most importantly, remember the goal of the boards is simply to show that you're safe and that you're not going to assume that something's not a problem when it is. And I think you did a great job on that. Your presentation style was fantastic. You uh, responded quickly without stalling, but also without just jumping into things. Uh, very good work, Doctor. Thank you. A little, little slow to the physical physical exam part, but you you got me there. So thank you. Yeah, and and again, uh, that probably brings up an important point as well, which is you don't have to be perfect on these. Once again, remember the goal of the certifying exam is to show that you're safe and that you're not doing things that you shouldn't be doing. They understand that you're going to be nervous, that you're going to uh, sometimes forget really obvious things. Uh, and as long as it's not egregious and uh, doesn't happen over and over again on every scenario you're given, that's really okay. Um, you may not get a perfect score, but you'll get a passing score. Uh, so don't worry about that too much. Thank you. Absolutely. Dr. Doe, are you ready for your turn? Let's do it. All right, fantastic. Uh, Dr. Doe, I'm Christian Jones. Thank you for coming. Just as we talked about with your colleague who you may have listened in on, we will go over a couple of scenarios today. I'm going to try to keep the timing uh, within what you would see on the real oral boards. But most importantly, what I'd like you to do is treat these patients exactly as you would in real life, not trying to uh, simply guess what the examiner is thinking. Uh, you don't want to get in my head, believe me. So yes, uh, we're going to start with our first case. You are called to the trauma bay uh, with, for a patient who is three minutes away uh, and reportedly has a gunshot wound to the chest. This is uh, a report that you're getting from EMS, and they say that he appears to be hemodynamically stable, he has good breath sound bilaterally, and they'll be at your center in uh, uh, two minutes now. Uh, great. So in this scenario, I would uh, go down to the trauma bay. I would mobilize my team. I would assign roles, uh, have someone who is uh, at the head of the bed to manage the airway, uh, assign a nurse to rapidly put on monitors, um, try to attain vitals as soon as possible, maintain a clear line of communication. Um, I would uh, have a low threshold for activating the massive transfusion protocol. Uh, and with all these items in place, I'd be prepared to receive the patient. So the patient arrives. He is about a 20-year-old man who is awake and alert. He is scared and diaphoretic. He uh, is sitting up on his stretcher. Uh, he will not let the uh, EMTs lay him down, and uh, you move him over to uh, your stretcher and hold him down while you start your primary survey. So take me through that. Okay, so for my primary survey, I'm going to start with the airway, breathing, circulation, um, make, make sure he has adequate IV access to large bore IVs in the peripheral. 
um, and then uh, disability GCS and pupillary exam, and then get a full exposure uh, to start with my primary survey. His airway is intact to voice. His breath sounds are equal bilaterally, but may be diminished. Uh, he has pulses that are strong uh, at his carotid and his femorals and equal bilaterally. His GCS is 15, though he is, uh, I'll say, uh, non-medically, he is panicky. Um, and his pupils are four millimeters equal and reactive. You get a large bore IV in each arm. You connect him to the monitor and you find that he has a heart rate of 130. He has a blood pressure of 100 over 70. He has uh, SATs of 92% on room air, and he's breathing uh, 30 times per minute. Okay, so this is a young man uh, who uh, has compensated thus far, but uh, I am certainly concerned about the asymmetry on his um, uh, chest exam. Uh, on that exposure, were you able to see where his uh, entry and exit wounds were? Sure. So he has one penetrating wound consistent with a bullet wound um, in the right anterior axillary line uh, at about the fifth intercostal space. Uh, you roll him, you check his other crevices and folds, and you're unable to identify any other wounds. Okay. Uh, at this point, I would uh, do my adjuncts to the primary survey to include a a chest x-ray pelvis and a, a fast occurring simultaneously? Okay, you do all of those things. Uh, there's no sign of fluid around the heart. There's no sign of intra-abdominal fluid, uh, but he does have uh, bilateral pneumothoraces and uh, apparent foreign body consistent with a bullet in the left hemithorax. Okay, so this uh, appears to be a transmediastinal injury. Um, I would start with uh, bilateral uh, large bore chest tubes um, in the trauma bay. You put in, in bilateral chest. chest tubes. Yeah, you put in bilateral chest tubes. You get a rush of air with each one, and three to four hundred cc's of blood out of each one. Okay, and could I reassess the vitals as well? They're the same. They're exactly the same. Okay. Uh, great. So um, at this point, the the patient is stable, though he does have a penetrating wound to the chest. Um, I'm wondering if CT scan could be valuable or um, I think that I'm going to forego CT scan and take him to the operating room, given that this is a uh, transmediastinal injury. What are you going to do in the operating room? Uh, so, um, given the transmediastinal nature of this wound, um, I think that the best approach is going to be a, a clamshell thoracotomy. Uh, so, in the supine position, I would uh, do a left-sided anterolateral uh, thoracotomy, uh, come across the midline with the Lipschke knife, and then extend that to the right side. Okay. So you do a clamshell, um, you find that there's moderate lung injury on either side, but that you've essentially missed any uh, important mediastinal structures. Okay. Um, so uh, at that point, I would um, 
uh, repair any of the minor lung injuries, um, place uh, any additional chest tubes that are needed, uh, close the chest, um, and then uh, take him to the ICU. Okay. So you take him to the ICU. He does reasonably well, uh, but is remarkably difficult to wean from the vent. Um, he continues to have uh, difficulty with increased pressures, uh, that is increased peak pressures on his ventilator. And uh, most importantly, every time you uh, increase those pressures so that he's adequately oxygenated, he has large air leaks on his chest tubes. Mm. Uh, so um, at this point, um, I would try, what I'm concerned about is a, a missed tracheobronchial injury. Um, I would attempt to clamp the tubes and see how he tolerates that. Okay. Let's move on. Okay. Your next case is a uh, young man, also about 20 years old, who's in the emergency department. He's a college student and has had a weekend of binge drinking. He was found down by his uh, roommate on this morning and had uh, difficulty arousing him. He's waking up now, but is complaining of excruciating abdominal pain. Okay, so um, I would quickly assess this patient, um, immediately trying to ascertain how ill-appearing Ill he is. I would, uh, as I enter the room, uh, look at his vital signs on the monitor, assess his ABCs, make sure he has adequate IV access and has resuscitation ongoing. So he does have IV access. He is getting a banana bag uh, currently. Uh, some people call it an Osler bag, uh, the usual post-alcoholic uh, um, uh, thiamine and folate supplementation in fluid. He is uh, tachycardic to the one teens, has a blood pressure of 130 over 80, uh, is breathing 22 times per minute, but is saturating 100% on room air. His airway okay. is intact and poised. His breath sounds are clear and equal bilaterally, and he has palpable distal pulses. Great. I uh, start with a focus history. Um, apart from the binge drinking, um, any other prior episodes like this? Any other associated symptoms you can tell me about? He's able to report to you that about once a month he has a heavy weekend of drinking. Um, that's just part of his social life in college. Uh, he frequently passes out, and uh, the same thing happened in this case. The only thing that was different this time was uh, during one of his many episodes of vomiting, he did vomit up some blood along with uh, the uh, contents of his stomach. Okay. Um, at this point, I uh, do a focus exam, um, checking for any epigastric pain uh, as well as a cardiopulmonary exam. Um, and then I'd order a, a chest X-ray, upright chest X-ray, as this is happening. Uh, you do your exam. He has exquisite epigastric pain and left upper quadrant pain. Uh, it's not peritoneal. Um, he does not have peritonitis, I guess I should say. Uh, but on uh, palpation, it is quite tender. He, his cardiopulmonary exam is entirely normal with the exception of his tachycardia, and uh, your chest X-ray appears normal. Your upright chest X-ray appears normal. Okay. Uh, 
So at this point, I would uh, send out some labs, CBC, BMP, lactate, and coags. But I think my leading differential item as I as I wait for those, um, I'm concerned about in the setting of retching a, a Boerhaave syndrome and esophageal perforation that um, could certainly be missed on the chest X-ray. I would start with a, um, a gastrograph and swallow. So you do a gastrograph and swallow under fluoroscopy. Is that what you're going for? Yes, sir. Okay. Gastrograph and swallow under fluoroscopy demonstrates no uh, extravasation of contrast, but rapid transit into the stomach and then the small bowel. Okay. And then I would uh, try thin barium while he's in that suite. You have the same findings. Same findings. Okay. And so... Uh, with that oral contrast, uh, granted that his creatinine is okay, I would then take him to the CT scanner for a, uh, essentially a, a CT with the PO contrast that he already had as well as IV contrast. Okay. okay. So his creatinine was fine. As a matter of fact, the only uh, abnormalities that you had on his CBC and CMP um, were... Uh, elevated white count of 14,000, um, elevated hemoglobin of 16, and uh, a lipase of 2,000. Uh, you take him to CT, and you find that he has uh, what appears to be a fluid collection posterior to the stomach uh, that is not containing any air. Um, he also has significant stranding around the pancreas. Uh, but no evidence of uh, small bowel obstruction, of leakage, or of free air or fluid in the abdomen. Okay, so at this point, uh, my leading differential is uh, pancreatitis, uh, acute pancreatitis. As far as the fluid collection goes, uh, are there any features that make it appear more like a chronic pseudocyst as opposed to a like a contained perforation? What features would you be looking for? Uh, so, in particular, um, for the pseudocyst, I'd looking, be looking for any sort of a feature like a walled-off uh, cystic structure, uh, or whether it appears that way, or if it appears more like there's just a fluid that's not walled off in that space. It looks like simple fluid uh, without mm -hmm. any inflammatory changes or mature rind around it. Okay. Uh, so at this point, I would uh, admit the patient to the ICU. Um, whether this is a, um, uh, it's hard for me to say exactly for sure whether this is a, um, a pseudocyst versus a contained perforation, but whatever the feature is, it doesn't sound to be contained. So I'd start with the trial of non-operative management, um, putting the patient on IV fluid resuscitation. How much fluid are you going to give him? Uh, so I would place it fully and uh, use uh, urine output to help guide my resuscitation. But uh, I would start off with uh, 100 cc's an hour of lactated ringers uh, and go up to as high as uh, 200 if needed. Okay. He continues to have worsening abdominal pain while you're resuscitating him, but his lactate does clear. Uh, to normal, uh, and his white count, uh, unfortunately, continues to rise. Okay. 
So at this point, this patient has failed uh, his trial of non-operative management. Um, I would consent him uh, for an exploratory laparotomy. Okay, let's stop there. All right, Dr. Doe. So you had two cases. What were your thoughts? Uh, boy, sir, it was, it was challenging. Both of these cases made my heart race a little bit. Good. That's that's a good start. Um, they should. These are tough cases, and uh, if you're not a little bit nervous, you're doing something wrong. So as far as timing goes, did you feel rushed? Did you feel you went too slow, too fast? Um, I feel like, uh, unlike Dr. Canary here, um, I took a little bit longer to establish the diagnoses in each. Um, so I felt like I could have been a little prompter with that, and that would have given, given me more time on the back end for the um, operative management and the post-operative care. Yeah, and in fact, in these cases, um, I will say, though, that your operative management was not the focus. And so even when you feel that way, it may not mm. be true. That is, it, it, it may not be what the examiner is looking for, and that's okay. So don't, you know, there's, these are the surgical boards, so everyone thinks, okay, a big part of my goal is to get to the operating room so I can describe the case and look for the things that I can look for. Um, and that's not always uh, what the examiner is uh, wanting to find out. In both of these cases, my goal for you was to decide whether or not you felt like you had to go to the operating room rather than yes, what you were going to do once you get there. So that, that is a big part of it. Um, and in, again, in both cases, don't feel like uh, you're wasting your time doing your preoperative evaluation or uh, wasting your time outside the operating room. I promise, uh, again, there are going to be cases like these uh, where that's not the focus uh, so you're not messing up the time. Even though you don't want to stall at all, for the most part, it's going to be the examiner's role to keep you on time uh, to fit into that, you know, 30-minute, 28-minute uh, window for your cases. So, um, for instance, if I have a, a uh, an examinee who is really stalling, then that's a problem, but for the most part, if we're just taking a little longer than I think, then I'll give them a little bit of information and skip ahead. Okay, now you've decided to go to the operating room and you've opened the patient up. You're looking down in the right lower quadrant. What are you looking for? You know, things like that. Um, let's talk about your specific cases. The transmediastinal gunshot wound is, uh, again, from for those of us who uh, enjoy treating trauma patients, uh, this mm -hmm. is one of the classic challenges uh, that we can appreciate. Um, and the case, as always, is trying to decide whether the patient needs immediate operative management, and if so, what that operative management uh, is. So you decided once you identified that he had a transmediastinal gunshot wound, uh, you decided to go straight to the operating room and do the clamshell thoracotomy. Are there other things you could have done? Uh, I think so, sir. Well, I was certainly afraid um, of a scenario where he would crash in the in radiology. Um, so, but I think that he was probably stable enough that a CT scan could have helped with operative planning. Um, additionally, in retrospect, I think that uh, doing a bronchoscopy 
um, and an EGD at the time of the initial operation would have been very helpful. Okay, I think that both of those are, are very reasonable. Uh, let me be entirely clear. Yes, you could have gone to CT. Yes, you could have crashed in CT. And very much like we were talking about on Kevin's cases, this could be one of those situations where if you don't go to CT, you're going to miss something important. And if you do go to CT, you're going to crash and the examiner just wants mm -hmm. to see how you're going to handle either one of those. Um, in this particular case, again, your goal is to do exactly what you would do in real life. For my patients in real life, if they're stable, even semi-stable like this patient, uh, they're probably going to get uh, a scan uh, for me to at least help delineate what's going on. That's not necessarily yeah. required by any means. So going straight to the operating room is fine. But if you do go straight to the operating room, um, you probably would very reasonably find a um, uh, a less invasive approach to start. So you mentioned the bronchoscopy and esophagoscopy. I, if you had done either of those, um, you probably would have found a hematoma in uh, on your esophagoscopy, which you'll recognize as concerning for a contained esophageal perforation. Um, if you hadn't done either of those, that's fine. Um, but the, there's one other procedure uh, assuming you're not going to open the chest, there's one other procedure that I'd recommend that you do in this case. Any ideas? Um, so you assess the airway, you assess the esophagus. Um, and then you have a penetrating injury uh, that we know goes across the mediastinum. Um, so even though we've done a fast, it's probably reasonable, again, especially on the relatively conservative oral boards, it's probably uh, reasonable to please do a pericardial window. Pericardial window. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, good. Uh, so our next case um, was our young man who had been drinking. And once again, very similar to our other uh, cases, this is a little bit of what you make of it. So this could have been... Uh, something as simple as gastritis, or it could have been the pancreatitis that he obviously ended up having, or as you very quickly noticed, uh, the possibility of, of Borges syndrome, um, uh, an esophageal rupture, or even a gastric rupture. The other thing that I'll mention that it, it can be in a patient uh, who has this as a chronic issue is a perforated ulcer. Um, unfortunately, uh, not all that uncommon. Your workup was yes, very good. It was systematic, it was methodical, you knew what you were looking for and you knew what questions to ask. Um, the uh, uh, fact that you went to the ABCs because you were seeing this patient in the emergency department was absolutely appropriate. And really the only uh, concern that I have, well, let me throw it back at you. Thinking about it a little bit more in retrospect, is there anything you might've done mm -hmm. differently? Uh, so I think it was nice to know um, uh, a little bit more about um, what prior symptoms uh, that he may have had uh, prior to all of this. Um, that and I think that, um, you know, I'm actually not sure. That's okay. Um, that's why we do this, right? So uh, the only thing that I would uh, significantly change about your evaluation is your decision to go to the operating room. So pancreatitis 
is a horrible, horrible disease. And for better or worse, more of us are seeing these patients after, long after, in fact, they've been diagnosed with pancreatitis and are now having complications of their pancreatitis. The patients are more commonly being seen in um, medical intensive care units uh, treated by physicians who don't have a surgical background, which is fine, but it does mean that we lose a little bit of that uh, appreciation for the early management of the pancreatitis patient, something we still really do need to know. Um, and part of that early management is the recognition that these patients can get incredibly ill without having a surgical indication. So, mm. in fact, uh, I would say that uh, the comment that you made about failing non-operative management, unfortunately, this is probably the typical course for non-operative management for this patient. He'll have a massive inflammatory response even without a an infection going on. Um, in this particular case, the simple fluid collection uh, that was posterior to his stomach was probably a chronic pseudocyst, but could very well have just been edema from his uh, uh, pancreatitis as well. Uh, the fact that there wasn't any air in it um, suggests that it's probably not a perforation and at least uh, acutely probably need to be managed. Um, I think uh, your concern is a very reasonable one, um, given that we don't have a definitive diagnosis for that fluid collection. Uh, but once again, some minimally invasive studies like an EGD may be able to suggest to you that, uh, or at least convince you that there's not a perforation there. Um, the white count continuing to go up is very common in uh, pancreatitis, again, just due to that uh, significant inflammatory response. Uh, but the fact that his lactate cleared means that you're basically doing just about everything you can. Now, that may be the case okay. even if his lactate didn't clear, but uh, uh, realistically, the non-operative management of pancreatitis is um, one of those, unfortunately, uh, arts that we're losing, which can still be incredibly important for your boards. So. Dr. Doe and Dr. Canary, for both of you, I would say uh, the, the biggest issues with these cases aren't issues that you have, but issues that so many people have with the oral boards, and that is the goal of getting to the operating room and managing things operatively. For better or worse, not all of the cases that you'll get on your certifying exam are intended to be managed operatively. And even if they are managed operatively, that may not be the focus of the case. Remember that you'll have cases on your certifying exam that uh, include the decision not to operate, uh, that include the full methodical preoperative evaluation, and then some others that even though they're operative cases, uh, the examiners really just want to know how you're going to handle complications or how you're going to discuss a bad outcome with families. So if you find that you're not getting to the operating room, that doesn't mean that you've made a mistake or that you're stalling or that you're going too slowly. It may simply not be the focus of that question. And similarly, um, if you have a complication during a case, it may be that you were going to have that complication whether you did exactly everything right or not. And that's the focus mm -hmm. of the case is how to manage that complication. For both of you, honestly, your presentation was good. Uh, you knew what you were looking for, and uh, the eventual treatment of the patient um, ended up being reasonable. Um, obviously, we can you know discuss the minutiae uh, as we have done on 
behind the knife before uh, about the appropriate imaging for the penetrating trauma patient or the mm -hmm. operative or non-operative management of pancreatitis, uh, but that's not really what we're doing today. Your goal to you know present that what you're doing uh, is safe and that you're you know going to be a reasonable surgeon, um, I think is very well met. So nice job to both of you. Thank you, sir. One question I have for the the pancreatitis one is the um, is the sort of early indication for to do anything in the weeks following and be you know patient not getting better. You repeat CT scan. You see some air in the fluid collection, and then you maybe get a perk drain placed by IR. Would that be sort of the next common scenario yeah. we see? Um, so again, we have uh, made great strides in the operative management, and I probably should say the non-operative management of severe pancreatitis. Uh, one step to that is do as little early on as possible in terms of invasive interventions. If you can prevent any drainage or uh, aspiration or certainly surgery for 30 days from the onset of their symptoms, the patient will do significantly better. If you can prevent doing any sort of operative management uh, to 60 days, they do even better than that. So my current practice um, on the patient who is ill but not crashing is uh, if they don't have a a uh, massive hemorrhage for some reason, then I will attempt doing absolutely no invasive interventions for the first 30 days. So that means no drains. Um, that means no uh, video-assisted debridement, uh, but rather the medical aggressive treatment of the patient with resuscitation. And then if necessary, if they do end up having an infection, uh, antibiotics, um, they'll likely continue to smolder for quite a while, but the longer that you're able to defer an operative management, that better that patient will do. Great, great. And we could probably have a whole podcast on pancreatitis, and maybe we should. Yes, sir. Thank you for highlighting. Absolutely. So, great. Well, I think that was a very, once again, educational podcast, and we uh, really thank you again for taking the time out of your Sunday night. It's getting pretty late out there now. So. Well, I appreciate it, uh, Kevin and Wu. Thank you both very, very much. Until next time, dominate the day.